Please stand as you are able for today's Old Testament lesson from the book of Malachi, chapter 2, verse 17, through chapter 3, verse 4. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, how we worried him, by saying, all who do evil are good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or by asking, where is the God of justice? See, I am sending my messenger to prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, indeed, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the descendants of Levi, and refine them like gold and silver, until they present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. This is the word of God for the people of God. May be seated. Brad, thank you so much for reading our lesson this morning. And to all of you who are in person with us, uh, the peace of Christ be with you. It is so good to be in worship with you on this second Sunday of Advent. Uh, We're grateful to our acolytes, McCollum and Lorena, who have uh, lighted for us the second candle. We have now the candles from the first Sunday of Advent, hope, and today, peace. And Casey, thank you so much for your prayer for us. Mason and our praise team, wonderful, wonderful music. And to those of you online, it is a great joy to be with you. It's a great privilege to share God's word with you in teaching and preaching today and to welcome you into this special space as we share together uh, God's word and worship together. If you were here last week, you know that we began a series last Sunday called Wishful Thinking, which I think is very appropriate for the Advent season. And today we have read, Brad has read for us, another reading from one of the 12 minor prophets. We refer to them as minor prophets, not because their words are insignificant, but because of the brevity of those words, much more so than Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the minor prophets. It isn't clear to us whether Malachi is actually a personal name or more of a descriptive term The name, the word Malachi in Hebrew, literally means my messenger or my angel. And as always, I think before we get into the meat of the text, I think it's pretty important that we examine the context, the situation behind the text. This brief book that is composed of four chapters, 55 verses, hails from what we call the second temple period of Judah, or what we might call the post-exilic age. After 70 years, after seven decades of captivity in Babylon, Cyrus of Persia, who was known to have a great appreciation for human rights, defeated the Babylonian Empire and liberated the refugees. These Jewish refugees returned to their native Judea and were permitted by Cyrus to rebuild the temple, which they completed 20 years after their arrival home, somewhere in the year 515 BC. But as time went on, it was evident 
that Jerusalem was but a shadow of her former glory. The new temple wasn't like the old temple and nostalgia was in the air. As you can imagine, it's one thing to get the people out of Babylon, but it's another thing to get the Babylon out of the people. And we're told there arose a famine in the land. The economy was plummeting, unemployment skyrocketing, and frankly, the spiritual fiber of the people was waning. And so our text begins, Brad, you read it for us, chapter 2, verse 17, with the mention, get this, of the weariness of God. Now that's an interesting thought because most of us don't often think of God as being capable of being fatigued. In fact, you might turn to Psalm 121 verse 4, he who watches over Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. You could turn to Isaiah 40 verse 28, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding you cannot fathom. But Malachi begs to differ. He speaks of Yahweh as growing tired, weary, get this, of the antics of his children. You ever get tired of your children? Don't raise a hand, please, they're here. You ever get tired of your kids? I can assure you they sometimes get tired of us. I, however, have learned that grandparents never tire of their grandchildren. I've learned this. Uh, I'm something of an authority as a grandfather. A full eight days I have been a grandfather. And one of the reasons that grandparents never tire of grandchildren is, you know, we can always give them back and come home, of course. He was up all night. On Wednesday night, we were there visiting Haley and Zach, and the next morning, our exhausted daughter presented him to me, and I held him for two hours, and he promptly, immediately went to sleep. She said it was unjust. I said it was pastoral care, and that I seemed to have that effect on some of you. The sound of my voice sometimes just puts people out like a light. There's a reason they called me Somonix in, in theology school, but that's the way it is. Sometimes we get weary, and sometimes God gets weary, perhaps of us. You see it in Isaiah 43, verse 24. God speaking says, you have not bought any sweet cane for me. You have not lavished on me the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins, and you have wearied me with your offenses. And so apparently God sometimes gets weary, and so do you, and so do we. We're living in a rather wearisome age, aren't we? I sometimes wonder and would love to go around the room today just to pass the microphone and ask you, what is it that makes you weary? In preparation for today, I asked some of my lead team, some of my staff that question, what makes you weary? And I got some interesting responses. Social media, cable news, political partisanship, blaming and shaming, hypocrisy, 
double standards, false dichotomies, discrimination, racism, prejudice, violence, conspiracy theories, self-righteousness. One person said, you're preaching. You know the feeling, and so does God. Malachi specifies what it is that makes God weary in the text right before what you read, Brad, in chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. Let me give you the inventory of what makes God weary. Divorce, adultery, idolatry, corruption in government and in the church, a lack of devotion in worship and sacrificial giving, neglecting the poor, neglecting the widow, the orphan, and the alien. And then in chapter 2, verse 17, this fatigue factor of God hits a crescendo. Listen to, listen to the text again. You have wearied the Lord with your words, and yet you say, how have we wearied him? You have wearied him by saying, all who do evil are good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or by asking, where is the God of justice? Now, I think it's important to say what this prophet, Malachi, is not saying. He is not saying that we should refrain from asking our questions. I don't know about you, but I, for one, am grateful to be a part of a church where it's not only okay, it's not only acceptable, it's absolutely necessary to be able to bring our honest inquiries to God. I'm grateful that Malachi never once says ours is not to question. Indeed, to be human is to question. I think it was Rene Descartes the French philosopher who said, I think, therefore I am. And so ours is sometimes to question. And Malachi, in 55 verses, get this, contains 22 questions. Wow. Elie Wiesel, the Holocaust survivor, the Jewish writer and Nobel Prize winner, tells the story of while, while he was a boy, when he was a schoolboy, his mother would greet him every day at home when he returned from school. And every day, he said, she would ask me the same question. She never asked, what did you do today or what did you learn today? She always asked, did you have a good question today? When you read these four chapters, you will discover that Malachi has some awfully good questions. In fact, his questions, I think, are a Jewish means of prophetic revelation that actually counter the unthinking certitude of much of our so-called religious conviction. Good questions, like who can endure the day of his coming? Good questions like who will be pure and blameless in the day of Christ? Who will prepare the way? by repentance and forgiveness. I think the season of Advent, before we go to Bethlehem, the season of Advent is a time to question our own worthiness, to question our own readiness, to question our own willingness to actually welcome Jesus into our world. 
Sometimes I hear people who are struggling say something like this, when I get to heaven, I've got some questions for God, as though it is my responsibility to hold the Holy One accountable, and I get that. But personally, I don't know about you, I'm a little bit more concerned about the questions that God may have for me. I've come to the conclusion that faith isn't really about having all the answers. It's about living in trust with unanswered questions. That's faith. When I was a student, I attended four different Methodist colleges and universities. You say, well, you certainly skipped around. I didn't skip around, I got a degree from every place that I went, from Martin to Lambeth to Emory to SMU. And I noticed in those days that most of the tests that I took, most of the examinations were seldom ever fill in the blank tests. They, they weren't really multiple choice. They were essay tests. In other words, the professor didn't just want the right answer. He wanted me to explain the process. She wanted to know how I arrived at my conclusion. And I discovered that whether you're talking about social science, whether you're talking about literature, history, psychology, or math, that the best teachers don't just want the right answer. They want you to show your work. They want you to show the rationale, the means by which you determined the sum of the equation. Because if you get the process right, it will generally lead to a pretty sound conclusion. And you've discovered, I don't have to tell you, that the best teachers don't just tell you what to think, they teach you how to think. And that is the task of a Malachi, a messenger. I'm still getting over Thanksgiving. We had Thanksgiving about a week and a half ago, and at our table, we had in our family two pastors and two therapists. That can be a dangerous combination when you're trying to digest your food. And somehow in that table conversation, we began to discuss how it is that we assist persons who come to us for counseling. And one of our in-laws asked the question, what do you tell them when they come to you for help? My daughter-in-law, who is brilliant, who is a therapist, replied, I don't usually tell them anything. I don't usually tell them what to do. And someone said, why? And she said, because the human instinct is that when we are told what to do, we do the opposite. And so I usually ask questions. The reality is, she said, that they probably already know what to do. My job is to help them to discern for themselves what they already know and have not been able to do so that they can begin to live into that new direction. And that's the work of a Malachi. I've discovered in my own life that the hardest thing to learn is what you already know, but won't do. I think that what wearied God, though how would I know, what wearied God more than the question itself was the ethos 
the mindset behind the question. There was in the post-exilic age, as there is in the post-modern age, a spirit of skepticism, a spirit of cynicism, almost agnosticism, so that that question, where is the God of justice, may have actually meant, is there any justice at all? And the reality is, I'm sensing that God is asking that same question of me. Is there any justice in you? I sense God saying, you're waiting on me for justice. I'm waiting on you. I've given you the tools. I've given you my word, my instructions. I've given you my presence, my spirit. So why the chaos? Why the violence? Why the injustice? Why the corruption? We know what to do, but we don't always do it. And Malachi is here to say that justice is coming, and when it comes, it may take us by surprise. The Lord is going to come suddenly, he says, and it may not always be so gentle and mild. It may be with holiness and righteousness. It occurs to me in the messenger's comments in his prophecy that the appropriate gifts for the coming of God may not just include gold, frankincense, and myrrh, (laughs) but also some fire and some soap. Fire to burn off the dross and, and bring out the worth of our metal and soap to cleanse us, to get the stain out. I think, I think that's what Advent is really about. And when somebody asks you, are you ready for Christmas, I'm not sure that's just about presents. I think it might be about some fire and some soap. As we get ready for the coming of Christ, I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask us to do a reverse paraphrase of the initial question of Malachi. And instead of just asking what is it that, God, that makes God weary, let's ask the question, what is it that brings God joy? Now there's a question worth pondering. What is it that brings God joy? I want you to live with that question. Maybe it has to do with worship. Maybe it has to do with persistent prayer. Maybe it has to do with sacrificial giving. Maybe it has to do with loving an unlovable neighbor or reconciling with an enemy or making room for a stranger or caring for the widow, for an orphan, for an alien. I think that's really what Christ wants for Christmas. And besides, (laughs) whose birthday is it anyway? This is what transforms weariness into joy. This is what transforms despair into hope. I think this is what transforms chaos into shalom, into peace. And by the way, the early church 
interpreted the text that we just read as pointing to John the Baptist, who was the Malachi for Jesus, who prepared the way not simply with a right confession, but with the right action. Notice when the crowds came, when John was preaching repentance, they came with the right question, what must we do? And John responded, if you've got plenty of food in your pantry, give it to somebody who's hungry. If you've got more than one coat in your closet, give it to somebody who's cold. To the tax collectors, don't take more than your fair share. To the soldiers, don't extort, don't bully people, and be content with your wages. The gift for Christmas is not just a feeling. It's a doing. Last word. It's always interested me that that text that we read, Malachi 3, appears in one of the signature choral works of this season, George Friedrich Handel's Messiah. This text is one of the oratorios in that musical. I heard it myself just a few years ago at the Skirmerhorn when the Nashville Symphony Orchestra performed Handel's Messiah. It was brilliant. In that particular section of his composition, the question of God's love and justice is raised And in the recitative, the text that we've read is actually sung. The Lord whom we seek shall come suddenly, but who may abide in the day of his coming? He shall purify the sons of Levi. That's in Handel's Messiah. After the first presentation of the Messiah in London, England in 1741, George Friedrich Handel wrote these words in a letter to a friend. I shall be sorry if I only entertained them last night. I wish to make them better. I wish to make them good. He was a Malachi who still challenges us to go beyond feeling good to doing good. In fact, his music still continues to pose a question to me, to you today, about our Advent worship. Is it entertainment or is it edification? Is it a diversion or a direction? Is it for amusement or for our awareness? And the answer to that question, he provides, Handel provides by his own witness. Listen to this. Ten years after he performed it for the first time, by 1751, he was blind. But every year until his death, he conducted this piece, the Messiah, as an annual benefit for the foundling hospital in London, England, which served the widows and the orphans. My intent, he said, is not to entertain. It's to make us better It is to refine, to purify, so that we may become like gold and silver. Well, that's the task of a messenger, and that's the chore of the church. It isn't about feeling good. It's about doing good. And you are the Malachi. (laughs) 
you are the messenger who is to prepare the way for the coming of God to the glory of God. And I think that's not wishful thinking. I think that's faithful living. May it be so in you and in me, in Jesus' name, amen.